From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Severe cases of COVID-19 cause inflammation in the lungs. Today, we'll explore what that means and also how permanent it can be with an expert in lung disorders. Dr. Dana Savage is an Associate Professor of Medicine and Chief of the Pulmonary Critical Care Division at Upstate University Hospital. Dr. Savage, I really appreciate you making time for this interview. Thank you for inviting me. It's, uh, it's an honor and a pleasure. Well, let me explain to our listeners that critical care is the care that's provided in the intensive care unit and pulmonary means lungs. So you really have an expertise when it comes to caring for patients with severe cases of COVID-19. It's been described as a respiratory illness. So I'd like to have you walk us through what that means. So um, the COVID-19 virus um, penetrates the human bodies through the respiratory system and the, and the mucus lining, like eyes and uh, mucus lining of the uh, mouth of the oral cavity. And that's the, we call it port of entry. So that's how it penetrates the, uh, the body. And from there, it may remain locally, like in the nostrils where it likes to take residence and cause um, stuffy nose and a little cough and congestion and fever, obviously, or may travel um, to the lungs through the breathing pipes. They, we call them airways and cause inflammation of the lung and the blood vessels in the lung. If it moves into the lungs, are, are both lungs usually affected or does it go to one or the other? Um, I have to say I've seen a large number of patients with COVID pneumonia in the intensive care unit, and mostly I have seen um, the damage to both lungs. I wonder whether that's also timing when uh, patients get very ill, then that's a sign that the infection has already spread. Maybe at the earlier stages, maybe it's more limited, but I only see patients in advanced stages of the infection. So the coronavirus can cause severe inflammation in the lungs, but isn't the body's inflammatory? Is that that inflammatory response is what fights the virus? Is that right? Uh, yes, we like to say to believe that it is the inflammatory response that is a defense mechanism of our uh, body against any infection and so is against the coronavirus. However, um, the inflammation on occasion with any uh, infection, it's um, exaggerated, it goes overboard and from a defense mechanism becomes an enemy causing damage and disease in itself. So we need some inflammatory response, but not too much, hopefully. Yes, that is correct. Uh, it is also interesting that the only drug that has shown improved survival in patients in, with critical uh, illness pneumonia uh, is a, uh, it's called dexamethasone. It's a, it's a hydrocortisone. And the purpose of the drug, it's anti-inflammatory. Oh, interesting. So that speaks to the importance of the balance between inflammation and anti-inflammation 
for our lungs to sail smoothly through this infection. So when lung tissue is inflamed, how does that affect, or does, does it affect a person's ability to breathe? That's a very um, good question and very interesting to us in uh, pulmonary and critical care medicine. Yes, the inflammation affects the alveoli, which are a component of the respiratory system of the lung where the gas exchange occurs. In the alveoli, the oxygen finds its way into the blood vessels and the carbon dioxide is eliminated. That's the only place where this kind of a gas exchange occurs. All the oxygen that our body uses to live, to, for the heart to beat, for our brains to function, for our kidneys to function, for our muscles, all of that oxygen has, has to go through these alveoli from the ambient air. If when the alveolis are flooded with inflammatory material, cell, inflammatory cells, we call it exudates or fluid, dead cells, then that space is occupied by these unwelcomed elements, and they are no longer able to carry out their fundamental function in gas exchange. So that's why uh, people's oxygen level become low, and then it's hard to breathe. It's also hard to breathe because the lung is now stiffer. It's no longer filled with air and elastic, but it's stiffer because of uh, all these components that don't belong there are present. Is this what happens with pneumonia as well? Yeah, uh, to uh, many uh, types of pneumonia, well, both um, viral and uh, bacterial, um, the, the same process happens. There is an inflammatory reaction which affects the uh, breathing component of the lung and uh, then it's difficult to breathe. It's harder to move the air in and out and then it's harder to get the oxygen from the air into the system. So from a patient's point of view, they're having to struggle to breathe, it sounds like. Yes. Yes. Well, what what determines whether someone is going to die from this disease or whether they're going to be able to recover? Um, that's also a very interesting question. And in the intensive care unit, we uh, oftentimes we uh, try to gauge the chances of somebody's survival to kind of be prepared what's coming next. And it is very difficult um, because at least in the first half of the pandemic, about half of the patients on mechanical ventilation, on ventilator, did not survive. Now the um, statistics have improved and only 20% may uh, die of those who end up on mechanical ventilation. So um, it is difficult to predict the outcome, but there are some big, 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 big predictors which is uh, one is the vaccination status. Somebody who has, who is fully vaccinated or had already COVID and then vaccinated, if they get COVID again, they usually have a mild disease, but I didn't see a breakthrough infection in the ICU. And then the second biggest predictor of what's going to happen to the uh, patient is his immune status, whether or not he's immune compromised. 
patients who uh, underwent organ transplant, especially solid organ transplant, their immunosuppressants, they have a huge risk of um, not surviving an infection, even um, vaccinated. That's why these these are the patients that now are going to get a booster. So the so vaccination status, immune system status, cancer, chemotherapy, um, organ transplant, um, individuals who are on biologics for um, rheumatological diseases, because these are all immunosuppressants. They are the highest risk of not surviving. And then the other categories, I believe uh, we know, most of the people know who are the other categories of patients with a poor outcome are the elderly. So uh, those who are over 90 years old, they have a 25% risk of death if they get infected. Um, so age, uh, asthma, diabetes, hypertension, maybe strokes, but those are the big um, predictors of a poor outcome. Are smokers at greater risk for a bad outcome? Only 40% of the smokers develop lung disease. So the other 60%, um, they have mechanisms to counteract the effects of smoking on their lungs, and they have all practical purposes, they have normal lungs. Um, intuitively, um, more damaged the lungs are when they go through this inflammatory process, hardly prolongs to fight it and recover. But I have to be honest, I do not know the data, although it must be out there. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Dana Savage. She's an Associate Professor of Medicine and Chief of the Pulmonary Critical Care Division at Upstate University Hospital. Now let's talk about treatment. Um, you mentioned dexamethasone, the anti-inflammatory. Um, do people with severe COVID, are they generally on supplemental oxygen? And how do you decide whether they need a ventilator or not? Okay, so um, if once they develop COVID-19 uh, induced uh, viral pneumonia, some of the patients require oxygens, oxygen, other Others not, depending on how extensively the uh, lung gets involved. But as the disease progresses, and sometimes this is obvious within hours or even days, the oxygen requirements become higher and higher, meaning that the patient has less and less lung that functions for the purposes of lung function oxygen, um, gas transfer, oxygen, and carbon dioxide. So uh, we have a number of means to deliver a high level of oxygen, um, you know, nasal cannula, um, we call it high flow, when the oxygen is delivered with some pressure to force the air through the lungs into the blood vessels. And then once uh, our, um, these means are exhausted and the disease con continues to progress, then uh, the next step, it's, you know, the step up is placement of the patients on mechanical ventilation. I've heard about some COVID patients being positioned on their stomachs. Is that still being done and, and why would it be? Yes, it's done in um, both patients who are on mechanical ventilation and who are not. And um, changing the position to the stomach redistributes uh, where most of the blood flow in the lung goes. 
and um, makes regions of the lung to work better or clearly recruits them to to respiration so um, it it's just more workforce in a in a lung that is getting recruited and there are patients who stop at this level i would like to add um, a uh, piece of information here um, so where this breathing uh, on the stomach came from it's it's an uh, not a new concept it's an older concept there were you know many articles on it but and it, they all showed that improves the oxygen transfer improves the oxygenation but what we are in, interested in is whether the patients are going to survive longer because that's our goal to help the patients survive longer um, so you know there was a very important study in 2012 which actually showed an important survival benefit when the patients are flipped on their stomach now this is not COVID. This is um, just general lung injury. Um, but uh, we have this data in the information has been extrapolated to the treatment of patients with COVID, and a lot of times works very well. There are patients who once they're flipped on their stomach, the oxygen system is much better. So uh, you know, I want to just backtrack a little bit. And I think that that's uh, uh, maybe will be helpful for the for the future. Is I just want to say is uh, I think this is obvious, but we haven't uh, made the centerpiece of our talk. There is no treatment for COVID infection. Okay, there is no treatment that helps patients survive, or there is no treatment for this viral infection. So notoriously. Other viruses are much more difficult to treat um, than um, bacterial infections. But COVID, we do not have treatment against the virus. So what do we treat? We treat the inflammation and we push um, strategies to improve the oxygen transfer. But with these strategies, when oxygen transfer is improved, what we're actually aiming at is to support the patient's life until the, the pneumonia and the infection subsides on its own. I see. So we have evidence and we know from other diseases that if we support the patient's life, eventually the organ, the body is going to be able to limit the infection. The dexamethasone, if it yeah. is going to help reduce the inflammation, then the hope is that the patient's lungs or their immune system will, that little bit of relief from the inflammation will help it work better to get rid of the virus on its own. Right, right, right. Are there other medicines that you find yourself using with COVID-19 patients frequently? So, um uh, there are uh, there are treatments that they are aimed at outpatient COVID, and treatment that aim are aimed at patients who are hospitalized. So the treatment for um, outpatients is monoclonal antibodies against the virus. Once they become critically ill, that treatment does is not effective anymore. Therefore, it's not administered. The treatments that are used in a critically ill patients are the anti-inflammatory treatment and strategies to prolong life regardless of the cause of uh, 
the, the, the cause of the disease. Would a lung transplant cure someone who has severe COVID? Traditionally, lung transplants were not performed in acute patients. So if somebody had acute lung injury from, say, strep pneumonia and didn't recover to the point that could walk and be discharged, did not qualify for a, for a transplant. So, you know, there are physicians who have made a name in the World Health Organizations and helping countries to, um, you know, to make great progress in their public health and uh, infection control and prevention, who died of SARS, for instance, of um, the earlier COVID, um, because and they, they died because they had severe pneumonia and nobody would transplant somebody who's in bed with severe pneumonia. So what happened now uh, was that there are a number of COVID patients who survived on ECMO. And they survived on ECMO and they were taken off ECMO and some went back to ECMO and uh, or they couldn't come off the ventilator. And uh, nationwide, uh, some of these patients have been uh, transplanted. So I cannot give you exact numbers because I think the registry was just started, but there was a registry started and um, last I was aware of it was about six months ago. There are about 45 patients who were transplanted. And huh. one, one was from our, uh, was from, from Skinneapolis, was our patient at, at, at Upstate. And, um, and his wife actually found out that COVID patients are transplanted. And uh, we have transferred him, I believe we transferred him on ECMO to a center in Florida where we also had connections and uh, he was transplanted. So this was about six months into the disease. So it might be a little too soon to tell if that's a therapy that would be effective for you know the masses. So the, for the masses, the main limiting factor is organ availability. Right. You have to have a donor that matches up in order right. to, yes. There, there, are, there are more patients waiting for lung transplant or lung transplant list than, than, than donors. And obviously the ones that qualify are the healthiest ones and the ones that went through COVID without major organ damage or without being uh, majorly compromised, who despite of uh, a severe infection, um, their body still retained a lot of uh, repair capabilities, uh, as was this individual who was completely healthy before I had COVID. Well, let me ask you to explain, if you would, please, um, ECMO. What, what is that? So, ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. And this is also a limited resource. It's not, um, there are more patients than needed than ECMO availability. Um, the, the process is that the, now the lungs don't work at all. So the, the individual would die because the lungs are majorly compromised. So when that happens, then the question is, if we keep this person alive for a prolonged period of time, would this lungs heal by themselves? 
Um, so obviously there's somebody who has terminal cancer or has other terminal diseases that affect their survival. Um, ECMO is probably not a appropriate uh, management strategy, but an individual who is pretty healthy and doesn't have major other major diseases and there is a hope for recovery, then the, then the, their entire blood is diverted from the lungs into outside of their body. The blood is passed through an oxygenator, and uh, which does the function of the lung, uh, loads the blood with oxygen and offloads the carbon dioxide. And then the freshly, uh, the refreshed blood is returned into the circulation. Interesting. As long would work and even better. And it's called extracorporeal, so outside of the body, membrane oxygenation. So outside of the body, oxygenation, you know, the transfer is through a membrane. Interesting. Well, I've I've heard of some people with COVID uh, having limbs amputated. Why might that happen? You know, that's an also very, um, it's an excellent question. COVID, this virus um, very strangely has a affinity for blood vessels. And I'll give you an example. There was a study published in New England Journal of Medicine last year in July, and they looked at lungs from patients who died of lung injury of other causes, those who died of lung injury from COVID, and those who died of other causes and the lungs were normal. The lungs of patients with COVID showed we call um, microangiopathic thrombosis, meaning that the lining of the blood vessel, actually the lining of the blood vessel had virus in it. And it caused plugging of the uh, inflammation of the wall of the vessel and, and uh, plugged the vessels. Okay. So, um, the inflammation was so intense in a, in, a, in a blood vessels that they were obstructed. So the circulation ceased through those vessels. There's also a lot of inflammation around the vessels, not just inside the vessels. I found it very interesting that we didn't see the virus in other places in the lung, but we saw it in, a, in the lining of the blood vessels. So that can happen in the entire body. And they, these patients are predisposed, we call it they are hypercoagulable. They, their blood coagulates more than normal. The, the, uh, the, uh, their blood forms blood clots to a larger extent than in normal individuals. So the result of that are blood clots to lung, pulmonary embolism, strokes, so blood vessels clogged and obstructed in the brain, limbs where the blood flow is cut off and uh, the tissue dies and the limb has to be amputated, kidneys, the same thing. A lot of people think that the kidney failure in COVID patients, it's due to more of the blood vessel disease than other causes. Um, and, and I have to say that um, we, at the beginning of the um, epidemic, we have given blood thinners to patients, to all of them, because we just didn't know who will benefit and who will not. 
and um, was very, there was no data behind it. It was more speculation. The, and the idea that if their blood is coagulating more than normal, then let's make it thinner. But um, just a, a week ago, there was a paper which came out in uh, New England Journal of Medicine, which showed that patients were hospitalized, but not critically ill. And they are fully anticoagulated, meaning that they, their blood is thinned to a certain parameters. So if the blood is thinned, that their survival is better than those whose blood is not thinned. Interesting. So it really shows to what an extensive degree this is a disease can be a disease of the blood vessels. I also have to say that this disease has many facets. Not everybody has blood clots. Not everybody has um, kidney failure. Not everybody develops pneumonia. It's just a very multifaceted uh, disease. So maybe we won't be calling it a respiratory virus when we look back on it, if we continue to learn about all the other damage that it's doing. I think that these damages are occurred to a much lesser frequency than the than the than the respiratory, or they occur in conjunction with the with the respiratory respiratory. Okay. Because the port of entry is still the upper airways. Okay. Well, I'm interested in people who have what um, is being called long COVID, where they're still struggling to take a deep breath, even months after they've been released from the hospital. Does that mean that their lungs have sustained permanent damage? Um, so I do see patients in outpatients who have prolonged symptoms of difficulty breathing, breathing, of feeling tired and weak. And um, and I see uh, patients who are athletes, and they actively push themselves to gain ground. And I hear the same story. Very very slow. Um, I don't. We uh, check their pulmonary function tests. We check their oxygenation. These are normal most of the time. By the time you know they come to our attention, a couple of weeks or months after the acute disease. But yet they are short of breath. So I thought that a lot of it may be due to fatigue, to feeling tired from the virus. That makes it harder to breathe. Um, it's also a category of patients who are left with severe scarring of the lung, um, which is a permanent damage. I think to answer your question, I would say that there are temporary symptoms and there are long-term consequences. Long-term consequ consequences are uh, very rare. The short-term consequences are common. What is, if anything, can a person do to help their lungs recover? I mean, you mentioned athletes. Are they advised to try to, you know, get back into the game or get back into working out? or do they need to rest for longer periods? So um, again, um, the advice we give right now, it's not based on uh, hard data. It's not there yet. Uh, so we advise against prolonged rest because that can make them weaker. Uh, more, more we rest, um, weaker the muscles are, 
harder to breathe. And then we want to rest more, sit around more and not uh, walk up steps. And then we are weak with emotional breath. It, it's a downward spiral. We advise them to slowly slide into a their previous life pattern. And uh, it takes months. Dr. Savage, I really appreciate your time. My guest has been Dr. Dana Savage. She's an associate professor of medicine and chief of the pulmonary critical care division at Upstate University Hospital. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's HealthLink on Air.